Welcome to the Corlin Economics Report, a weekly look at financial and political topics relating to asset-based investing. Guests on this program pay no fees to appear, and guests and hosts disclose any equity interest in companies profiled. Now, the Corlin Economics Report. Hey, everyone. Welcome in to the weekend edition of the KE Report. Corey and Chad here, your host for this weekend's edition. Also, your host on our website, kereport.com, and podcast, The KE Report, on a daily basis covering market moves, company updates, and any key economic data that moves markets, or at least we think is important for investors. On this weekend show, we're going to start off more broad commentary on the macro environment as well as markets. And in the second half of the first hour, move more into resource-focused comments. We're kicking off the show with Peter Bukvar, Chief Investment Officer at Bleakley Financial Group, also editor of the book report, which you can find on Substack which is a very valuable resource for me on a daily basis where Peter breaks down key market moves, key earnings reports, really anything that's important for investors to digest. Peter, I do want to start on the macro front. As I said, with the book report, you really break down all the key data. There can be a lot of data that's thrown at us on a weekly, even monthly basis. What in your eyes has been some of the standout data that investors, especially market participants, need to be aware of? I think what's so unusual about all the economic data are the extraordinary amount of mixed signals we're getting. It's really, I, I, don't, I don't think I've ever seen in the years I've been doing this, seen so many mixed signals and cross currents. You take consumer spending. In the aggregate, the last print was a bit weaker than expected. You have high-end consumer spending doing well on experiences and leisure and hospitality and going to concerts, going out for dinner. But then the lower-income consumer has been very, quote-unquote, choiceful, according to the, uh, the Walmart CFO. You have, in the housing market, the pace of existing home transactions near a 30-year low, but new build doing better. Uh, you have manufacturing around the world that is essentially in a recession uh, and has been for the last year plus, but hopes that we're about to embark on a, a restocking period that would lift manufacturing. Uh, you have an enormous amount of government spending that is also helping to uh, lift GDP growth. But on the other hand, you have trade, global trade, that's somewhat muted part of the slowdown and the spending on goods. So it's just a lot of weird puts and takes that can't just say the economy is good or bad or, or whatever. You really need to, to look at it in a more nuanced way with a lot of these mixed signals. It's very confusing, to be honest. Well, Peter, I know something that you follow very closely is also the bond market and the interest rate yields, the bond yields. And you've noted some of the bond auctions lately, a lot of them not going so well, but recently the seven-year went a little better. What is your take on the bond market and the interest rate market? So we had the end of last year, which saw a big rally in treasuries with the five-year yield going from 5%, which was up from about three and three quarters last summer, and then fell to about three and three quarters, 380 on the rally, and then has since backed up because we know we went into the year 2024 with expectations that the Fed was going to cut as much as six to even seven times, and that's down to now three. So we've seen this rather notable backup in interest rates with the 10-year yield back to around 430-ish and the two-year 
up to 470-ish. And I think it's, it's, it's noteworthy in that it reinforces this higher for longer situation that the, the hopes and dreams of many that we would somehow magically go back to 0% interest rates uh, because inflation would just magically fall quickly and stay at 2%. Uh, I think we're just reminded that this is still uh, a new environment and that while inflation trends may continue to slow as the year progresses, it's not going to be in a straight line. And there's still risks that it can inflect higher again, particularly on the good side, because I expect services inflation to further slow because of, of, of it reflecting the reality of, of the rental growth situation. But I think in the big picture, and sorry to sound hyperbolic, but you know, we the, the bubble this time around was in sovereign bonds, and that bear market doesn't just end in two years. Uh, this has a ways to play out, and I still expect now maybe the worst is over on the short end. It's unlikely the Fed or other central banks are going to raise rates, and even Canada may be cutting after their last CPI report sooner rather than later. But I still think long-term interest rates uh, are going to trend higher, and that we're going to retest at some point that five percent level and possibly go through it. And not necessarily for good reason, because as you mentioned about the auctions, you know, there's an extraordinary amount of treasury supply that needs to get digested. And these auctions are a good tell on demand. And while maybe the, the market impact is leading because it's usually just that particular day of an auction, I still think it's a good tell. And especially with just the extraordinary size of them and that they are continuously getting bigger as the budget deficit in the U.S. Uh, remains rather large. And if we go into an economic recession, these deficits are going to get even substantially bigger. Peter, one thing that I found very interesting is that this year, yes, rates have moved higher. Is that the very tail end of last year? The 10-year was down at about 3.7%, 3.8%. It's moved up to about 4.3% usually, or at least a couple of years ago when we saw rates moving higher, markets were impacted. But it hasn't seemed to hurt the markets. The markets continue to push to or near at least all-time highs. Is it just the market accepting higher for longer is here, but still they need to put their money somewhere and it seems like markets are that preferred choice? It's Well, let's separate out the market because the market too has been very bifurcated. It's really been a big cap market and big cap tech. It's been, been big cap weight loss drug and big infrastructure spend, whether that is helping Caterpillar or, or other type of industrials. So it's not just... NVIDIA. It is other big names, but it's like McDonald's too. It's like mega, mega large names that people are finding comfort in and much less so in anything smaller mid cap where people are more worried about the higher cost of capital and still mediocre economic growth in the aggregate. I mean, you look at the day that the day after NVIDIA reported earnings and the NASDAQ was up 3%, the advanced decline line at that, on that particular day in the NASDAQ was negative, which is kind of shocking to see how separated parts of this market are. And it's interesting, even within you know the big cap tech names, which we used to call the Magnificent Seven, it's really down to the Fab Four. Tesla's out, Apple's out, Google now is is possibly out, as people question their ability to compete against AI, other generative AI sources, and Apple's growth is almost non-existent, and Tesla is dealing with its own now car issues. So we're down to four names 
in terms of that grouping. You know, divergences can last for a while, but it just you just wonder how long this one can go for. Well, Peter, you do a good job in talking to your subscribers about what you see from the earnings calls. You follow a lot of different companies, whether they're in retail or in the service sector and communications and technology. And it's not always such a rosy outlook when they do their guidance for the year to come as what maybe the mainstream financial media is covering. You talked about divergences between some of the mega cap stocks and some of the other stocks. What other patterns or what other information are you seeing in the guidance from the earnings reports that we just saw from Q4 of last year? Well, let's take technology. I mean, obviously, anything connected to AI is still doing well. But I think the the surprising report that we got just recently was Palo Alto Networks in the very hot cybersecurity industry. And what was most interesting is the CEO mentioned spending fatigue in that if you're a company, you're getting overloaded with cyber offerings and you wonder if each incremental spend is you're going to get a return on that investment. That was definitely surprising, and particularly, again, in light of uh, a part of tech that we all know has a large growth rate ahead of it, but uh, maybe we got a little bit ahead of our skis in terms of the, the rate of that growth in cyber. We're just beginning to get a bunch of retail earnings, and you know, I mentioned earlier what the CFO of Walmart said about Choiceful, Home Depot, and Lowe's you know, talked about still a soft do-it-yourself type business and a better professional business. Uh, I'm sure as we get more over the next couple of weeks, uh, the the discounters like TJ Maxx will be doing better than the Nordstrom's just because as people, more people look for value. Uh, Walmart talked about again, I think multiple quarters now, about how more people making more than 100 grand are shopping in their stores. Uh, on the industrial side, if you were have any sort of exposure to infrastructure spend, you're doing fine. Like the aggregate companies, Martin Marriott Materials, Vulcan Materials. If you are benefiting from the building of these manufacturing facilities, building EV batteries and, and chips, you seem to be doing fine. And steel, you know, is a raw material that obviously feeds into that. So uh, there's definitely a lot of positive talk there. But, you know, if you're doing business globally, Europe is essentially in a recession. China slowed down. Japan is technically in a recession. So if you're a big multinational, you know, there, there's a, a challenging macroeconomic environment out there. And, and we heard that from uh, a lot of different companies. So, you know, getting back to you know how we started this, there's just so many cross currents. And unlike I think I've seen in my years doing this. How does this play into currency trading then? And the U.S. dollar continues to hang up uh, in this almost trading range. It has done fairly well this year, but Again, it's not breaking out. It's widely in the middle of a trading range since the very beginning of 2023. We do get a lot of data that shows other countries are struggling. The U.S. seems to have some of the better data out there. How are you looking at currencies, the balance there? I, you know, I always think to, to, to slice and dice the currency space also and not just say, okay, the dollar's up, the dollar's down. I mean, you know, the, 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 you, know you talked about a trading range and it feels like that's what we've been in. Like you take the euro, it seems like we're in this never-ending 105 to 115 trading range. And now we're you know, pretty much smack in the middle. Uh, you look at the British pound, for example, and we've sort of been on this 120, 130 trading range. And now we're you know, just under 127. So called still relatively middle of the range there. And the Canadian dollar has been seeming like a multi-year trading range against the dollar, 140 on the upside, 130 on the downside, and we're 
exactly 135. And it seems like this is this has been going on for years. I mean, I'm just looking at a chart. You can go back five years and the Canadian dollar, you know, has been in with this 130, 135 range. So I think the the you know the incredible rally in the dollar that began in June 2021 when Jay Powell said we're now thinking about taper and QE and then ended in November 2022, just as the Fed was slowing down the pace of their rate increases. You know, we've come a lot. We've come off a, a lot off that, at least the DXY off that November 2022 high. And now, you know, the dollar is just kind of chopping around. But what is interesting is with this uptick in interest rates, you know, the dollar has gotten a little bit of a lift, but, you know, not much of one. And it's actually faltered over the past week, even with just the, the rising rates over the past week. So me, the, the dollar is no great shakes here. And um, if the Fed does cut interest rates this year, even if it's the three that the market is now anticipating, you know, there, there is downside risk here for the dollar because I don't see the upside scenarios for it, to be honest. Well, Peter, let's also talk about gold because when we talk about interest rates, when we talk about the dollar and currencies, a lot of people look at the precious metals and gold in specific uh, it's been hovering for the last really 15 weeks. It's been closing above the 2000 level. That seemed to be a level that was very hard to get to. Now it seems to be a, a level that's very hard to leave to the upside or the downside. How are you looking at gold relative to interest rates and the currencies? Well, considering this move higher in interest rates after the drop late last year, gold trades like a champ, in my opinion. Gold has traded like a champ since the beginning of 2022 in the face of that dollar rally I just mentioned and the most aggressive monetary tightening in 40 years. Um, what doesn't trade like a champ are, of course, the gold miners, which you guys know as well as anybody, but gold itself trades great. Silver trades poorly because I think it's trading more with, with copper and worries about global growth and, and as a monetary metal like gold is. But you, you got to give gold a lot of credit, and we certainly know where that big level of demand is coming from, that being central banks. Uh, the World Gold Council just a few weeks ago talked about the record amount of 2023 central bank buying that was pretty much in line with the record level in 2022. And why should that stop? Especially now that there's, you know, the net, an interesting thing with gold is you know, putting aside how it's going to trade against the dollar or other currencies and, and interest rates. Uh, another big thing is is the, the big debate within the EU and the US is what to do with the 300 billion-ish amount of reserves of Russian central bank reserves that we confiscated, or I should say we froze. <laughs> we haven't confiscated it yet. But the, the, the talk that we could confiscate it and we could use it to rebuild Ukraine, or we could use it as collateral for loans that would then rebuild Korea. I mean, Ukraine. I mean, if we start sort of taking that money, uh, it would give a lot of foreign governments and central banks even more reason to lessen their depends, dependence on U.S. assets and further the purchases of gold. So that would be the, the next thing that I would be watching for because now I don't know even if it happened, how it would end up legally, how long, how drawn out this would be. But, you know, that that's a big thing here in, in, in the eyes of foreigners who are wondering whether their assets can be taken away uh, at, at, at someone else's whim. Peter, as you said, the gold stocks, they're not doing very well. The majors, mid-tiers, juniors, all continuing to struggle. You tend to focus a little bit more on the majors. Why is there just no interest in these major miners when they do report record revenue numbers? Quite depressing, I have to say. And, and I, I wonder, 
you know, why do we torture ourselves um, being in this business? But, you know, I, I, I think, you know, part of it is, you know, it's a lumpy business and subject to unforeseen costs, unforeseen political issues. You know, you take Newmont, for example, where they really disappointed. And, and I, I just think if you have a lot of people that, that, that are generalists that, that sort of tiptoe their way into the space when they want to play gold, I mean, Druckenmiller's last uh, 13F, he bought Barrick and Newmont. I'm sure he didn't do a deep, deep dive on both companies. He just said, you know what? I want to get long some of these bombed out gold miners. I'm just going to buy the biggest. And then on then fast forward, they report earnings and they miss by a penny or five cents. And, and now all, all the algorithms smash it, even though they're still making plenty of money. Now, Newmont, of course, cut their dividends. So that disappointed people. But, you know, I, I, I think you have people in here thinking that I'm going to own it and gold's above 2000 and these guys are going to be at estimates and I'm just going to ride this sort of momentum. And, you know, it's not that simple uh, when you're when you're dealing with a business that's so unpredictable on the cost side. Now, at some point, if gold continues to stay above 2000 and profit margins remain very wide for these businesses, which I still think they are, and gold even takes another leg higher, which I think it will, you know, then, then you'll, you'll get money back into this group. But um, there's no doubt it's extraordinarily frustrating and um, maddening, to be perfectly honest. Well said, Peter. I think there's probably some frustrated people in the sector, us included, on this call. But when you look at the rest of the commodity sector and a lot of the other metals, you mentioned silver is trading more like copper and that there's concerns about global growth. A lot of people point to China and the health of the Chinese economy or the or the, I guess the lack of health there and their real estate problems and some of the other problems in their stock market. And that's spilling over into how the need for commodity buying from China will affect the whole sector. How are you looking at the rest of the commodity sector in lieu of not just the U.S. growth, not just Europe and Japan, but also China? So no, no doubt, at least on the construction side, uh, you're not going to get the lift in demand for commodities like you once did. But the EV rollout, the, the need for uh, a bigger and more robust electrical grid, not only in China, but in, a, in the whole world, you need a lot of metals for that, particularly copper. And I think that people also don't appreciate the amount of infrastructure spend that is going on in India. It's extraordinary. And that is going to offset, if not already, uh, any slowdown that we see in the demand for industrial metals out of China. India is, I mean, the, the amount of highway build, road build, bridge build that they're doing uh, is unbelievable. I mean, they're reducing a drive from point A from point B from seven hours to two. There's a lot of exciting stuff going on over there. And uh, they're going to be a, a voracious bid under a lot of different commodities for years to come. Peter, one other thing you've been writing about, and I'd love for you to share at least some details on this is other contrarian sectors, other areas that you think could be in for a bit of rotation of capital into? Well, commodities, definitely, particularly the metals, which you know are bombed out. I just got bullish again on uh, agriculture and the fertilizer stocks. I had been long them going into the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, and you had this spike because everyone was worried about in what the supply what the supply situation was going to be with Ukraine got out of that position uh, in you know early 2022 
and waited for an opportunity to get back in. And my catalyst was uh, the sharp drop in crop prices, particularly corn and soybeans, which are multi-year lows, and the non-commercial, so spec uh, short position in both corn and soybeans are at a record high. And that's usually a good contrarian indicator uh, to look at the opposite direction. The fertilizers are down sharply. They're down about half from where they were just a couple of years ago on that Russia spike. And um, so that I find attractive. Another area where I think investors can can find a space to, to, to invest in. And also energy, very bullish on energy stocks that um, sort of have done nothing. But oil stays between 75 and 80. These companies are printing money. And uh, there's a lot of shareholder returns that can be had. So I think that that's an area while everyone's focused on AI and NVIDIA. And again, like I said earlier, a lot of the big mega cap stocks, there, there are other places where you can make some money where the fundamentals are pretty good. Well, Peter, just following up on energy, I got to ask you about nat gas. I mean, it has been on a wild ride the last couple of years, surging up to nine to $10 and now below $2 in the mid ones. A lot of people look at you know, oil stocks, but there are some companies that have a pretty big weighting to natural gas, and there's companies that are only natural gas. How are you looking at that side of the energy equation? Great question. With natural gas in the U.S. at a buck sixty, which is astonishing to see. Uh, we know we had a, a relatively mild winter. You know, also of course the recent decision by the Biden administration to sort of trap more natural gas here by not giving out new permits, even though I think that that will be reversed, but. Yeah, it, it is an offset, no doubt, for a lot of the big majors. But a lot of these guys are pretty good at hedging. You don't have too many spot producers, particularly in, in, in natural gas, which is prone to have such extraordinary volatility. But I think that there's going to be a supply response. And we, we heard that from Chesapeake when they reported earnings, uh, that they were laying down rigs. And you're going to hear that a lot uh, with natural gas being so cheap that uh, you're going to see a supply response that could firm up pricing. I, I only see one way up from here in, in natural gas. All right, Peter, we'll wrap it up here. Thank you so much for your time. I love reading over the book report on a daily basis. Look, I get a lot of information out of that, trying to make sense of all the data and all the different market news as well as company comments. Again, you can follow Peter on Substack at The Book Report, also Chief Investment Officer at Bleakly Financial Group. Peter, have a great rest of your weekend. Thank you, guys. Always great to chat. Al Corlin's firm, A.B. Corlin & Associates Incorporated, provides consulting services to public companies on matters of regulatory compliance. To find out more, follow the link from www.kereport.com. The Corlin Economics Report will be back after this brief timeout. Providing unique reporting on markets and companies since 1990. This is the Corlin Economics Report. All right, welcome back. Continuing to listen to the weekend edition of the KE Report. I hope everybody enjoyed those first two segments with Peter Bookvar, where we talked more macro and dove a little bit more into the markets. As promised, we're shifting our focus to the more the resource sector as we are chatting with Joe Mazumdar, editor of Exploration Insights. Now, Joe, a quick recap of a recent trip you were on down in Australia. You went on a few site visits, and 
really we're down there just getting a feel for that market. We have heard that Australian markets focused on resources, they were doing a lot better. Their companies were building mines and their markets were taking note. Their markets, I've heard, have turned over a little bit, but look, they're not in the doldrums like kind of what we're seeing in North America here. Joe, what was your takeaway from the Australia trip? Did you learn anything new? Yes. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. So I went there uh, ostensibly to visit uh, three different projects in southern eastern Australia, and that would be uh, New South Wales, Victoria, and uh, Tasmania. And so with respect to New South Wales, we all know about the, the Cadia porphyry copper gold project that's being mined by um, Newcrest, now, now, now Newmont, um, a large block cave operation, low cost. That's in New South Wales um, near the town of Orange. And as you take what's known as the Macquarie Arc, where that's hosted in this volcanic belt, if you take it up north, it starts going undercover. And that's where this company that I have shares in Inflection Resources is looking. And as we were talking about was, you know, exploration, that type of exploration that they're doing, broad space holes that are multi-kilometers apart, checking out new geophysical techniques and looking for those kind of uh, Cadia-like billion-dollar uh, copper gold deposit, billion-ton, sorry, uh, copper gold deposits, multi-billion-dollar assets, undercover, that is probably not a program that can be funded by the retail market due to the fickleness of the market. So that has been, is being funded by a major company, Anglo Gold Ashanti, South African-based. Now they're moving their HQ to Denver because of the Silicon Gold project that they found. They are funding that, and that's a multi-year program. And so when they drill something, and they're, what they're doing requires multi-year funding and a long-term approach, which is not always the approach that the retail market looks for. And so I, I feel that there's always been a bit of a you know, misalignment, let's say, between the people that are funding you in the Canadian market and what some people are trying to do. Well, Joe, another thing we were talking about before the call with as far as the Australian resource sector is, they have a little bit different mindset when they're looking at a project for exploration or even development, because a lot of times those companies move right into also building the project, keeping the same team in place. It's a different mindset that we see in North America where companies drill things for marketing purposes, even if they know it, the project may not work out, and they usually are hoping that they're going to get bought out. Could you maybe speak to that difference in the way they approach the projects? Yeah, there's a, a lot more uh, companies in Australia that filter projects with the idea that they could be built. And, and so when they filter based on that, they reduce the amount of projects that they would actually uh, put into their company or, or list on. And then when they list, there's no disinterested shareholders like people that are in flow through or looking for a, you know, a tax loss. All these shareholders are buying into that same idea. And, and a lot of the projects, you know, like, you know, like Bellevue Gold, uh, you know, those uh, Gold Road with their joint venture uh, that they did with Goldfields, you know, these projects end up getting built. Gold Road that we held in Exploration Insights, that was the quickest turnaround that I've ever seen from, from discovery 
to production, which was under five years. Ridiculous. And I'm talking actually the first discovery hole. Uh, so that sort of thing seems to happen more often in the Australian market than it happens in the uh, in the Canadian market. That's uh, that's definitely the case. So, Joe, is there anything we can carry over to the North American markets here for investors when they're looking at investing in any of these exploration companies that could help the companies, could actually help the investments move higher? Well, this is an interesting question because what was weird was when I went down to Victoria, which I'd visited six years prior when I visited New Market Gold, when they had the Fosterville mine, when they were just finding what they're calling, quote unquote, epizonal gold, uh, which is associated with uh, stibnite, uh, antimony mineralization, uh, they were finding this new gold mineralization. And New Market was Canadian listed. And uh, they went there and and bought that mine when no Australian company would buy it. Before that, they, it was crocodile gold. The merger was about $190 million combined companies. They started finding this deposit, drilling it, and this ended up being a billion-dollar takeout uh, by Kirkland. Kirkland ended up going for whatever it was, 9 or $10 billion by Agnico. So definite value accretion. And the question that I got at the Victoria Gold Conference, you know, where are the Australian explorers in that in this, you know, area? Why are all the Canadians doing this? And and that was interesting because I, I was under the impression it was the opposite in most of these places. Because in Canada, we're seeing a lot of influx by ASX listed companies, especially with lithium in Quebec. So I think it happens on both sides that, you know, uh, Canadian listed companies will go to Australia, Australian listed companies will come here and and it happens and people dual list. But it's funny that, you know, when, when I went to Australia, I went with the idea that, oh, they're doing so much better than we are. And as you point out, that's probably turned a bit because then they're now they're talking about how badly they're doing, uh, which is kind of interesting uh, right now. Uh, but I, I would say, you know, these markets flip and, and Australia was doing very well in the last two to three years. That's probably stabilized to going a bit down. And now the question is, will the TSX and the TSX Venture rebound now? Boy, I hope so, Joe. A lot of people listening, I'm sure, probably hope so as well. But I think you made an excellent point in the pre-call when we were also talking about how they approach drilling a project. So this does apply to all exploration companies in all countries. The concept of drill it to kill it versus drill it to market it. And I think that they do a better job in Australia of drilling a project out to look for the red flags. And you mentioned that's exactly what we do in Exploration Insight. So maybe speak to that idea. Well, here's the thing is that these guys try to filter for with the idea that it can get built. You know, not necessarily taken out, but it can get built. Maybe by a smaller producer, an intermediate producer. Uh, that's not something that the Canadian uh, market is interested in. They're not interested in a smaller production scenario. They want it to get bought out. They don't want to get into development. And that's why we have this Lassonde curve where most of retail bails after the resource comes out or there's no resource because they don't want the de-risking. Uh, they don't want to pay for de-risking. Whereas in the Australian market, they don't mind as much because their idea is to bring it in, into production 
and generate cash flow. It's a different mindset, which produces different, let's say, products in terms of companies and management teams that are more aligned to getting that project actually built. So you'll see a more potentially diverse suite of, of people on the board of the management. And so, you know, you're not going to see seven accountants on the board. It doesn't make any sense because they're not all going to add the same value. Uh, so you'll see more engineers for an exploration project. You'll see a metallurgist, you know, those sort of people, which you need early to better help you filter these projects. So, Joe, how does that carry over to the North American markets? Again, just because the Australian markets are doing something different, they have different type of funders in the North American markets. It does seem like investors are focused on do something for me now, make the share price go up now rather than having this five plus year outlook. Can any of this carry over to the North American markets outside of just a broad bounce in the markets to actually help these companies garner more attention? I'd say fundamentally near-termism with respect to uh, investing doesn't fit well with the exploration model that requires three to five years to find or not find something or kill it. Sometimes you can kill something in, in one season. You have a concept, you drill it, it's gone. Uh, the problem is when you really don't prove or don't disprove something and you continue to drill it. That's almost like another uh, part of Dante's Inferno, basically, that you just keep doing it and doing it and come up with a different idea. If you come in with the mindset that you just want to kill it, uh, and if you find it, that's that's what where you continue and your investors are investing in you as much as they're investing in the asset. Wrongly, I've sometimes avoided some companies who had a massive premium because of management when I checked out the asset and I found it that it lacked. But eventually that same management team filtered the assets at the same high level will find something worth having, you know, uh, and, and that's really in expiration what you want is that same management team, regardless of the underlying asset, they will eventually get that asset that will be something of quality. They may not have it now, but if you keep, give that team time, they'll eventually get it. Um, whereas here, there's a tendency to go, oh, here's this high-grade asset. You know, it's been drilled before. We can re-drill a few holes and, uh, you know, we could get the share price up and then we could drill some more and then we could put out, a you know, a resource and blah, 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 blah. And that project may not have made it through these other teams filter because they know that there's a fatal flaw there with respect to development that would not come out in a resource. Yeah, Joe, I think that's very applicable to the North American markets because there's so many companies that know a project is not going to work ultimately, but they continue to market it and spend money and raise money on that project. And I think there's probably projects that should be killed sooner in North America having that Aussie mindset. But the other issue is capital, having enough capital to actually drill over a couple seasons. And it seems to be a hamster wheel in Canada and the U.S. where companies raise just enough to get through one season, hoping that they get a big drill hit so they can go back to the markets and raise again instead of maybe properly funding a multi-year program. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, you're absolutely right. These programs need like uh, a more long-term money, like two to three years. And, and the problem was a lot of these projects in Canada are remote, helicopter supported, seasonal. 
and so much more expensive to drill per meter. And uh, so the the little money they can raise goes not doesn't go as far unless they get that hit where they can raise more capital and uh, you know fund a multi year program. So if you do not hit that hole, you're basically maybe drilling another thousand meters a year, which doesn't give you much information and may not get that hole that you want. So you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I'm seeing the drilling costs in a lot of uh, uh, the states, is, is even without helicopter support, even without, you know, uh, being remote, no camp, still going up to $600 US per meter. So you can imagine how much, you know, some of these other places that are remote helicopter supported, you know, requiring camps, how much they cost per meter. And then when they go back to the market, uh, how much they need to raise and what might have got them 5,000 meters a couple of years ago gets them 1,500 meters or less. So, Joe, tying this all together, is it majors that are taking over the exploration game? I ask this because we have seen a couple pretty big resource updates just over the last couple months from major companies that, look, we all know that they're building cash positions. Seems like they're putting a lot more money into their own exploration and having success on the back of that. So are the majors taking over the exploration game? Uh, yes, in a sense that they, some of them do have money. And uh, the probably one of the ones that you're talking about that have done really well is Anglo Gold Ashanti on their Silicon Merlin project. Uh, I follow that one quite closely because we own Origin. We've owned that for a while. And they have a 1% NSR royalty on a big area of interest that, that encompasses the Silicon Merlin, which started off as about 4 million ounces at Silicon. And they've added another nine, at least, at Merlin. And so that was a huge discovery the management, uh, you know, back the geologist, even though this was undercover and with not much of a, um, a geochemical footprint, but they had a geological model that they tested and they hit. So kudos to them. And now the deposit that's really uh, added a significant amount of the resource for them year on year is Merlin, which wasn't the original discovery. So and this is an area that's been trodden. This is Walker Lane. You have had deposits in this area near the Beatty District. It really makes people rethink when when they decide that Nevada or some of these other places are well-trodden and there's no point in looking. Let's go to someplace else where there's less exploration done. You know, when you could do that in Nevada, that's that's a big deal. But there are a lot of companies like, like let's say, Newmont, that have not been able to replace reserves at any kind of significant level without without M&A. So I can see more companies, majors, trying to do more joint ventures, earn-ins, something like that with, 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 with those kind of companies that they could fund multi-year programs looking for deposits that they want in jurisdictions where they want to work without the problem with a major is when they spend money and do it themselves, they're paying about one and a half times probably in terms of expiration dollars than a junior because of all their safety rules. Oh, we can only use this helicopter company, which is twice as expensive as this one. You know, we have to have this in the camp, whereas the junior wouldn't have that. So they understand their own limitations. And so when they do these joint ventures, 
they don't want to take over the joint venture and prefer to pay a management fee to the junior, which helps them with their GNA. And they don't want to take it over until there's something to take over, like there's a, there's a big resource and they want to convert it into a reserve, which gets expensive. And at that point, the best thing for the junior to do is leave, take that NSR and walk away and do it all over again. Well, Joe, just to that point, we are seeing a lot of the majors starting to do more partnerships, that 9.9% stake or 19.9% stake in a lot of the early stage explorers. We've seen Rio, BHP, Newcrest before they were acquired by Newmont was doing a lot of that. We've seen B2 Gold doing it. We've seen Glencore doing it. There's a lot of big companies taking a strategic stake and giving companies the chance to have a couple of seasons. Is this the better route for investors to look at exploration companies that are getting vetted by majors? Yeah, I mean, I've done that. Um, I mean, uh, going back to inflection resources or headwater gold, those are two that we have in the portfolio. They've done that with uh, with Anglo Gold Ashanti in Australia, where I was, and they've also done it with with uh, Newcrest, now Newmont, looking at uh, low sulfidation epithermal projects in Nevada, all the way into Idaho. So for me, that gives me some kind of confidence that. If they hit decent alteration and uh, the concept is working, that they'll still get funded by the major, whereas if they had to do that and come to the retail market, they may not get funded. Or if they do get funded, it would be highly dilutive and they may not get all the money they want. So, Joe, what what are you telling some of your subscribers in terms of this environment where it's not just the exploration companies that are selling down, it's also the majors? The metals prices are broadly moving sideways, but there just isn't that love for, let's call it 95 to 98% of the stocks out there. A couple stocks continue to do well, but overall, capital is tight, share prices are down, and investors are wondering, what can I do to save my portfolio or should i even have a portfolio in this sector yes and you know and why shouldn't i just invest in nvidia or something like that the, the amount that trades is almost the same market capitalization of two of the the largest diversified miners the total market cap of that you know ai company is i think of the top 10 or something like that uh diversified miners in the mineral sector so what we're seeing now is the undercapitalization, low valuation of a lot of these companies that are actually attracting hedge funds to come into the market to look at the mineral sector and start investing in it. But I'm not sure. I mean, that'll have to get to a trickle-down effect for the juniors because the junior market is too illiquid for them. But it will happen. Uh, because these market, the, these investors is, uh, are, are looking at this market thinking there's, there's no way with the, the potential mineral demand and the supply issues that, uh, you know, that we shouldn't be involved, uh, in developing more projects. And so maybe what we'll see is more capital coming in to help these development projects get over the hump. So Joe, to that point in the gold sector, do we need more gold mined year after year? Do we need to keep increasing gold production if the funding doesn't seem to be there, if costs keep on rising? Well, I mean, theoretically, if interest rates go up at a higher pace than the underlying commodity, then, you know, you should keep it in the ground. The thing is, the gold price hasn't done that badly. The problem is the companies have done badly. One of the reasons they've done badly is their costs have risen significantly. 
and their margins have been compressed. And so they have to do a better job of controlling their costs. And, and that's been problematic. And then so you want to look for quality deposits. You want to look for jurisdictional stability. When you have these multi-year assets, you don't want to get in, build a multi-billion dollar asset that will last for 20 plus years, get into commercial production and have the country take it away from you. And so there's a lot of things to think about nowadays. Market segmentation in the critical mineral space that, you know, in the nickel space, you know, a third of the production or something like that is underwater, you know, but, you know, maybe Indonesia production can't be sold into the U.S. Well, how does that change the market? There's a lot of different things that weave through an investing thesis right now that make it very complicated to know what to invest and what will work and what will not work. Most the retail sector is is basically more focused on just that intersection. And that's what drives everybody. So from that investment angle, even for the retail sector, is cash king right now? Companies that have cash or even companies, even if they're in small scale production, if they're generating cash, is that making them stand out in your eyes? Yeah, I mean, the thing is that you want to look at somebody's work. If you like the company, you like their plan, then the question is, is their plan funded? And so you know you've got a 12-month or a 24-month runway. You don't want to come in and say, oh, you know, and you need money? Okay. Then you fund them, and then, you know, they don't hit. And it's like, ah, that's too bad, and i got to hold the stock for another four months. It's probably best to to have those ones that are funded. They're already going. They don't need your money. You could buy it in the market. And then you could sell it in the market as well if it doesn't work out. You know, those warrants when nothing happens aren't worth anything. Oh, we've seen that time and time yeah. again. Hey, <laughs> warrants not being yeah. worth anything. I guess to that point then, Joe, for companies that you can actually buy in the market, how much are you watching volumes right now? Because there are a number of companies that go no bid or quite frankly trade just a couple thousand shares a day. Well, that is the problem for a lot of people because in terms of these investors that want to get into the market, when they say, oh, you know, I'm really interested in the juniors, when they say juniors, they mean billion-dollar market cap companies. They're not talking about what we're talking about. So it'll be a while or, or if ever that they'll ever, you know, fund the kind of small companies we're talking about. So I, I think to get... Companies that are serious about exploration that require multi-year programs, the majors have to step up, especially in the gold sector, uh, to fund these programs because they're not doing a heck of a lot, most of them. And it's the innovative juniors that you want to be associated with that the majors would want to align themselves with. That's really where you want to focus in on. So what is innovative out there? What are companies doing that are different than what we've seen over the last few decades? So another thing we've been doing is looking a lot at, at new innovations, like, you know, the new forms of assaying, like the CRISO system that they put together in Australia, where they could, you know, they can assay faster and they're better reproducibility. Uh, so that's on the assay side. On another side is, is uh, deep geophysics, where these guys are using passive seismic methods to look you know, multiple kilometers under uh, undercover for targets 
and I'm talking to these guys about what they're doing. And, and so for me, that's very interesting to see what these new technologies, uh, because in, in stable jurisdictions that have been well-trodden, some of the new concepts are undercover, deep cover. I mean, I was doing that in Australia back in the 90s. So the Australians are very well, I don't know, uh, versed in, in doing that. And now they've had another two decades to study how to do that. And they're really advanced in doing it. And here's another point that I'll bring up with respect to Australia versus other jurisdictions. Uh, the Australian government funds a lot of regional geophysical surveys themselves and then gives that information to everybody. So that sort of levels the playing field for a lot of juniors. So these big data sets that sometimes only major companies can fly if they flew them in, let's say, parts of Africa. But here in Australia, the government will fly it for you and give you the data. And you can interpret it you want and you can go pick your own ground. And so they'll do big regional magnetic surveys. They'll do gravity surveys. They'll do all of this stuff. And, and also, if you've got a new concept, like I was just in Tasmania. If you're drilling a new hole in a new area, they'll give you $70,000, up to $70,000 for each hole. So compare that, compare that to flow through. What would you rather do? I mean, if, if I was an investor, I'd rather the Canadian government you know, gave tax breaks for funding or did their own funding uh, for these big geophysical surveys and stuff like that that they just gave to everybody. And everybody had them and everybody could do something with it as opposed to, you know, funding these lifestyle companies. Yeah, us funding those lifestyle companies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's fun, the one fun. thing that really gets everybody. Well, very interesting chat here, Joe. Thanks for first and foremost sharing your recent trip to Australia and also doing a little comparison in terms of what companies are doing over there compared to what we're seeing in North America, all tying into the exploration game, which we all know is hard. It costs a lot of money. It takes a lot of time to make discoveries and then even more money and even more time to build those assets. We'll see if this market turns and helps out a lot of these companies. But right now, cash being king and also watching trading volume so that you can trade those stocks if needed and if the story changes. Joe, thank you so much for joining us on this weekend show. Everyone, thanks for listening into this weekend show. Please remember to go back and check out our website, kereport.com and podcast, The KE Report, to listen to all the daily editorials and company updates. I greatly appreciate all the emails that you all send me, so keep those coming as well. Joe, everyone listening, hope you all have a great rest of your weekend.